Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Extracurricular. I'm your host, David Lee. Today, we are joined by our first guest of the entire podcast series, Harman Rosicki. Hello, Harman. How's it going? Doing well, and you? Harman is a recent graduate of Wake Forest University. He majored in mathematical economics. He received a degree in just three years of time with honors. And today, he will be talking to us about his senior research project. His project focuses on prison currency, which uses jails and goods exchanges between inmates as microcosms to study macroeconomic principles as a whole. Not only will we get to learn about his project in detail, we also get to hear about his journeys and experiences as a mathematical economics major, so future students can take something away from his stories. And now, without further ado, let's get into the episode. So you earned your degree in mathematical economics, which is a mouthful to say, but also one of the hardest majors there could ever be in college. So could you tell us about how you decided to take on this major and even develop the liking to it early in your life? Yeah, I think uh, especially with the math econ side of things, it kind of takes subjects that can sometimes be abstract, like multivariable calc or things along those lines. And it kind of makes, you know, when you attach it to the economic side of it, kind of makes it more applicable to life in general. So like whenever we would look at uh, more complex equations with multiple variables and look at partial derivatives and see how those partial derivatives um, correspond to things that actually have meaning. So like whenever we would do uh, comparative statics and look at like, oh, well, when you take the derivative with respect to this variable, it's basically just saying like the relationship between, you know, whether it's like consumption and something else, you know, or, or something like that. So it's nice to be able to have another subject, you know, outside of math that kind of bridges the gap between those more abstract things like partial derivatives and actual stuff that makes sense and can be compared to what you see and what you observe in the world around you. So I've always enjoyed, like you said, we talk about it all the time in 318 the past semester, we would always talk about, you know, you're formulating a Bellman equation for people's decisions. Even when we're outside of class, you can kind of see that in the world around you. So it's, uh, it's definitely cool to have a system and a framework to model things that you actually end up seeing in real in the real world. So that's one of the things I enjoy most and kind of why I'm interested in it. Yeah, no, that's definitely interesting. That's a lot like why I want to do stuff in this field. It's just right. like so many things where we understand, we see how it works, but we lack the understanding, at least the mathematical yeah. understanding of how this thing quantitatively uh, factors out. So um, I think one of the things that could fall into this category of we kind of see how it happens, but we fail to truly understand it is prison currency, where uh, you spend extensive time working on in your senior year, for sure. Also your senior thesis. So could you explain to us a little bit about how? prison currency works, what it is, and what your study focus on. Yeah, for sure. So it was actually in um, intermediate math macro with Dalton, um, where we talked about an article from World War II, where it was this guy that was in a POW camp uh, in the war. It basically talked about whenever he was in that camp, the kind of economic system that developed with trade and things like that naturally developed a currency by using cigarettes. So instead of just simply bartering and saying, you know, I'll, I'll give you a haircut if you give me a loaf of bread or something like that. It was like they developed a currency within the prison without even trying. And instead of saying that, they could say, okay, well, a haircut's, you know, worth this much of my time. So give me a pack of cigarettes for it. 
And then they would use that pack of cigarettes and say to someone else, so your loaf of bread's worth, you know, half a pack of cigarettes to me. So how about half a pack? And then eventually prices uh, developed because people would, with the supply and demand framework that we talk about in econ all the time, like the most basic supply and demand framework, you don't even need to study anything more in depth to understand that it's basically just people, you know, there's a specific supply of the loaves of bread, right? And a specific demand for them from the people in the camp. And then eventually a price develops where that supply equals that demand. And it was just naturally occurring without anyone even having to say the word supply and demand, you know? So I just thought it was super interesting that these uh, cigarettes just all of a sudden became the currency that they used within this uh, POW camp. And then it was also interesting because not only did they have this simple supply and demand framework, they also, the cigarettes themselves as the currency experienced other economic phenomena that we can observe in currency uh, in the world around us today too. So if you think about uh, when the US went from using nickel, like actual, you know, the material of nickel to make nickels, when they transferred from using nickel to using, I think now it's like a zinc core or something like that, and kind of just a silver plating around them. Um, whenever that change occurred, people said, oh, well, we better keep the nickel ones because they're going to be worth more than five cents, you know, because now these other nickels are supposedly worth five cents, but they're not actually five cents of nickel. Right. So they kept the other ones. And the idea of Gresham's law says that bad money drives out good money. So you insert this quote unquote bad money in the form of the, you know, new zinc um, nickels. And that drives out the good money, which is the old nickels that were actually made of nickel because people want to keep those because they're going to be actually worth more than the five cents that, you know, they're supposedly worth. So they experienced this in the prison economy too, because the cigarettes uh, people would, so not everyone was a smoker, obviously, but the people that were actually wanted to smoke the cigarettes. So whenever they became this currency, people would unroll their cigarettes and take out some of the tobacco and then use these, you know, lighter cigarettes as the currency because they were still a cigarette, but it was now they had some of the tobacco they could keep and smoke. So eventually enough of this happened that people started keeping the good cigarettes that hadn't been unrolled before and using them to smoke while the other people were still trading with the ones that had been unrolled and some of the tobacco was taken out. So it was another example of Gresham's law because once these bad cigarettes with less tobacco in them entered the economy, they drove out the good ones that had, you know, all the tobacco in them. So it was super interesting to see that even when you're not even thinking about economics at all, like they're in a POW camp, you know, fighting for their lives, et cetera, worrying about whether they're going to make it through the war and things like that. And still these economic phenomena continue to happen just naturally. So I thought that was super interesting. So that was the reason I chose the topic that I chose for my research. Uh, was actually that article. So I initially wanted to focus mainly on the prison currencies because uh, I thought that was super interesting. But obviously, since so much of it is underground, there's not that much information available about them. But however, I did find one other article about the uh, Louisiana State Penitentiary from 2019, so pretty recent. And I was able to compare the article from 1945 to this new one from 2019 and the new one basically talks about how nowadays tobacco is not even allowed in prisons. So you can't have cigarettes. You can't have, you know, things like that. And additionally, you can't, you, you can't be caught with actual like dollars or any, you know, real currency in a prison because uh, that's also considered contraband. So these, uh, the inmates in the Louisiana State Penitentiary had to develop a new system by which to make trades 
that they needed to make with other inmates. And so um, they actually ended up kind of transferring to a more digital currency where they would use, and obviously they were not the sole, you know, players in this. They had to get people on the outside to kind of help them, but they would basically talk to someone on the outside and say, Hey, go pick me up a prepaid debit card. So just like any prepaid debit card you see in a grocery store today, um, go pick me up a prepaid debit card and then another card that's called a green dot card. And so these green dot cards can be loaded with sums of up to $500. So they would use the prepaid debit cards and they'd load the money onto these uh, green dot cards. And then once the money's loaded, that card has a code, a 14 digit numeric code on the back that enables you to transfer whatever sum is on that green dot card to someone else. So they say, okay, give me the 14 numbers that you just transferred that money to. And they get those numbers. They remember those numbers. They give the numbers to somebody else, whether it's a guard that's bringing them something from the outside contraband or something like that, you know, whether it's an inmate or a guard, anything like that, they give them the 14 digits and then they can go buy one of the green dot cards and use the code, go online, use the code to transfer whatever sum is on that card to their card. And then now they have the $500. So it's almost like a rudimentary version of, you know, like Venmo or something like that, because you're taking the money and just basically transferring it digitally via the 14 digits. And that's that. So it was super interesting to see how the currency in the prisons had progressed from using simple cigarettes and kind of bartering to uh, an actual almost virtual currency. So I thought that was super interesting. And I was trying to draw comparisons between those two things, but I wasn't really getting anywhere. And then I actually ended up last semester taking a monetary theory and policy class in which we talked a lot about central bank digital currencies, which are basically centralized digital currencies that are issued, you know, obviously by the central bank and can be interest bearing. You know, they can, you have an app. I think China's actually uh, the forerunner in it that they're developing an app that the central bank can directly load uh, money onto your app and then you're, you can just use it. It's similar to Alipay, except it's from the central bank itself. But yes, and that's why China is actually um, the forerunner in it is because they already have such widespread use of Alipay, you know, WeChat Pay, things like that. So it's already that framework's already there of people using the app and things like that. And then now they're using it from the from the central bank itself, the PBOC, to kind of do the same thing. So I thought maybe this can be something that I can look at because now it looks almost as if we're going to transfer or at least partially use, you know, a digital dollar. So instead of, you know, having physical paper currency, they might start to use some of the more digital stuff through this uh, central bank digital currency idea. So I thought that was super interesting. And I also, you know, you can see how that would be a pretty good parallel to the prison currencies because they went from using, uh, you know, a physical thing to a more virtual thing that they could just transfer it, you know, via numbers. So I was like, all right, maybe this can be, you know, something else that I look into for the research. And that is what I ended up doing. But whenever I was discussing with my advisor, he was mentioning, well, why did the currency need to change? Like, why did the prison need to stop using, you know, cigarettes and start using the digital currency? And the answer is obviously, you know, they can't use cigarettes anymore. Right. But what else is there to it? You know, what constraints do they face in the prisons? that forbid them from using, you know, cigarettes or forbid them from using dollars or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, why did they need to transfer to a virtual currency? 
And so I started thinking about that and I ended up breaking down the constraints that, you know, prisoners face into three categories. So I said a freedom constraint, a monetary constraint and a time constraint. And because of these three constraints, um, they need to use the digital currency. And so the freedom constraint was basically, I won't get too much into it, but basically uh, talking about they can't obviously trade with whoever they want, whenever they want, they're in prison. So, you know, they, they have very limited times where they can actually interact with each other. So they need a more efficient way than going up to them and being like, hey, here's 10 bucks. Then the monetary constraint, they can't use actual dollars. So there's no anything like that that's that they're able to use. But then additionally, they're also not whatever currency they choose to use is not going to be governed by any central authority. So you can be, and this was especially notable, not as much in the more recent example, since we're talking about prisons within the US, but in the POW camp example, the cigarettes were subject to extreme inflation and deflation because literally it's almost as if the, (laughs) like today it would be like if a helicopter, they call it helicopter money. If the helicopter flew over and dropped money onto everybody, right? But that is literally what happened in the POW camp because the Red Cross would come and deposit their supply drop and then there would be more cigarettes, you know, like that was it was that was the only place they could get cigarettes from. So that was one of the monetary constraints that I said was there is no central banking authority governing the inflation and the deflation and the whatever of the currency. So that's another reason why, you know, the the digitization of the currency was so impactful. And then my last one, the time constraint was kind of, like I said before, you only have so much time where you can make the trades and stuff like that. And additionally, and this is especially notable in the prisons today, like, you know, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, things like that. Whenever you're trying to get something from the outside, it takes a lot of time. So then if they were trying to get dollars or something like that to use as currency, it would take them so long to get it into the prison that they might not even want to make the transaction anymore. So it was, uh, that's another thing why the, this is just simply transferring a 14 digit code. So that's, that makes it so much more efficient and you don't have to deal with the time it takes to actually get something physical into the prison. So that was another of the three constraints that I was discussing as to why they needed to use the more digital currencies. So then after that, it's all good and well, like you can analyze it and break it down into the three constraints and things like that. So uh, you talked about how there, you know, prison currency mirrors a lot of the actual aspects of uh, actual currency in our society, subject to inflation, deflation, and stuff like that. And then you then mentioned these three constraints the prisoners face, which yeah. kind of let them or force them is a better way to put it to use a digital form of currency. Yeah. So mm-hmm. do you think those three currencies, those three constraints are also faced in somewhat of a different manner? to regular customers in our exactly. society. Yep. Or is that That's exactly what with? I was just going to get into. Yeah. Because okay, you, you can look at it in the prisons and, you know, it's cool. You know what I mean? And it's an interesting subject to look at, but it doesn't tell you anything. It's just basically a description of what's happening. Right. So that's what the rest of my research focused on and kind of the main points of my research focused on were, can you put these constraints into play in the world around us? And what I kind of came to the conclusion about was you can maybe not on a day-to-day basis in the United States or in the United Kingdom right now, but go back to 2007 to 2008, 2009, whenever the financial crisis was happening. Or, so you don't have to look backwards, I looked at Venezuela right now because they're experiencing their hyperinflation with their currency. And Venezuela was an especially good example because while the financial crisis in the US and globally in 2007 to 2009 was 
obviously, you know, huge. It didn't have as much to do with currency, but Venezuela's is almost entirely due to the hyperinflation of their currency. So that's um, kind of what I looked into was a comparison between those three constraints that I just spoke about. And then now let's put those constraints into play in Venezuela. So I said, okay, how can you compare the freedom constraint, the time constraint, the monetary constraint to Venezuela's case? And basically the conclusion that I came to after looking at those three constraints was that Venezuelans might be um, benefited by using a decentralized cryptocurrency like Bitcoin in the short run to kind of mitigate the effects of the hyperinflation of their currency. Because right now it's like you, you get one of their uh, Bolivar is their currency. You get a Bolivar today and tomorrow it's like worthless. Like the inflation's at like millions of percent. It's like crazy. So what I looked at was how could Bitcoin maybe help with this? And Bitcoin, while it's obviously still volatile, it's still way less volatile than uh, the current Bolivar. So maybe using that now would eliminate some of these constraints and uh, allow Venezuelans to make the purchases they need to make and have the financial security they need as of now. But obviously, like I said, Bitcoin's still so volatile that it probably wouldn't be that great of a solution in the long run. So then I talked about once they get out of the current crisis, eventually might be benefited by using a central bank digital currency, which would just be a digital currency issued by the central bank subject to whatever interest rates they feel are necessary, things like that. But obviously with the contingency that they manage it appropriately, which, you know, with the hyperinflation now might not be that great of an assumption to make. So I mentioned that in my paper too. But yeah, so basically my conclusion about Venezuela was maybe they'd be benefited in the short run by using a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. And then in the long run, hopefully, you know, they can kind of get their shit together and make a CBDC which I, I don't know if I've mentioned, that's the acronym for central bank digital currency because it's a mouthful. So then I was like, all right, what else? You know, like what other comparisons can we make? Because that's just present day Venezuela. Yeah. So now we've gone at least from looking at just prisons. Now we're looking at, you know, just Venezuela. But what about everything else, right? And that's kind of where future financial crises is kind of the topic of the section because I, I want to talk about how CBDCs might be able to be used to, mitigate the effects of financial crises in the future, or even eliminate them altogether if managed appropriately. And so I talk about how the characteristics of CBDCs make it so that these constraints, you know, freedom, time, and monetary, whenever people are facing them can be avoided by using, you know, the digital currency. So I don't really argue for complete elimination of like a physical currency, but I definitely argue for either a temporary or a permanent use of uh, CBDC. So temporary would be like if a financial crisis might be looming, they can put this into play. They can use it to eliminate the effects of whatever's happening and then uh, like take it out of, I guess, by uh, they redeem it. So they give you physical cash for whatever digital cash you have. And then it just goes away. Or if it's permanent, you know, they have it and it's kind of a digital dollar alongside the physical dollar and they can use it however they feel they need to use it whenever they feel they need to use it. But basically uh, what I talk about is that if the central banks were to put in play a CBDC that was interest bearing, they would be able to kind of put their monetary policy 
into play more efficiently. So kind of, uh, if you think about now, talk about this in the monetary class that I was speaking of before, when they try to make an interest rate change, it goes through this complicated corridor system right now. So it's basically, they have to alter two rates. So there's a rate that's above the interest rate they want and a rate that's below the interest rate they want. Uh, one of them's like the interest rate on reserves and one of them's, you know, that, that's all that complicated stuff. But basically, yeah, they have to change two rates just to indirectly change the actual interest rate that people look at. So it's, it's so complicated. It's hard to describe. It's hard to comprehend. And if you were to have a CBDC that was interest bearing in and of itself, you could just change that interest rate on that currency and the consumers see it immediately. So it would be a much more efficient way to make these monetary changes for the consumer. So I argue for that. I also argue for if you look at transaction costs and like bank fees that they impose upon like bounced checks or missed payments or things like that. And then also look at the time it takes for people to transfer money from one bank account to another and to make transactions. Like it takes like one to three days to transfer something, you know, and it's all that mumbo jumbo with the banks. If you look at all that, that disproportionately affects lower income households in the U.S. and globally, but in the U.S. it's especially a problem. So these things like the transaction costs, you know, and things like that can be avoided by using this CBDC because now you have a method to make your transactions that's extremely efficient because it's online. So just like I talked about in the prisons, it's much more efficient. You don't have to deal with the time constraint. And therefore, that by using the CBDC, you wouldn't have to deal with, oh, it takes three days to transfer this amount of money to my other bank account so I can pay my bills and things like that. You know, Those problems, since they disproportionately affect the lower income households, by putting into play a CBDC, it would, uh, it would benefit those households especially well. So that was another argument that I made for the CBDCs. And basically, yeah, so kind of super complicated and drawn out process of getting this paper to where I wanted it to be started with just prison currencies it went to Venezuela. And then I was like, what else can you do with it? But basically, yeah, the, the final argument of my paper is that I think economies worldwide would be definitely benefited by the implementation of CBDCs from central banks around the world. And they would improve efficiency in financial markets by making transactions easier and quicker. They would allow for consumers to see changes in interest rates and changes in monetary or fiscal policy more efficiently and more uh, directly. You wouldn't see as much confusion you know, with these fiscal and monetary changes. Like People talk about the interest rate, but have no idea how it works. Now you know exactly how it works. So all those things make it so that it's pretty clear that a CBDC would, uh, would appear to benefit society as a whole through making everything more efficient. And that was kind of my argument in the paper was that it would be, it would be super efficient to put one of these things into place, both in the US and worldwide. So yeah, so it was definitely a big leap from just prison currencies to now you're talking about CBDCs and you know the global economy and things like that. But it was interesting to see how even just looking at this very small micro scale POW camp and prison in Louisiana could go from a simple analysis of that to all of a sudden now you can see a connection to the economy as a whole. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what we were talking about earlier about why it's cool to study econ because you can see how it models things that you see in real life. And that's, that's a prime example of it because you, you look at that, you look at the micro scale things and all of a sudden you can see how it affects your life, you know? So it was definitely interesting and 
cool to go through the paper and go through the process of writing it to kind of get a grasp of that. Yeah. A question on your conclusion, which is really interesting how, like you said, such a small phenomenon can relate to economies at such a global scale. And you argue for so many benefits of CBDC and other like digital cryptocurrencies. And from your description, like China is the only government that starts kind of trending this way. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Like the question, I feel like it's pretty obvious that if something is really this good, why aren't more governments incentivized right. to move towards this direction? Why are they sticking to, uh, you know, yeah. traditional currencies? Like, for sure. Answer to that. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a very good point. And I think the powers that be in the macro economy have heard you because nowadays everybody is looking into it. So this was kind of a new thing that China looked into first a couple of years ago. I think it was 2018 or 2016, I don't know, but a few years ago, they started looking into it and started uh, doing their due diligence about it. And then now China is the only one that's at the point of actually starting to implement it. So China's implementing it for... It's, it's a really small percentage of the population, a, a very small percentage of the actual money that flows through the economy, but it's basically public service workers are being paid half of their travel stipend in the form of a CBDC. So the PBOC is depositing half of their travel stipend for, I, don't, I guess, buses or subways or public transportation of some kind. They're depositing that into an app that everyone can download on their phone. They deposit it into there. They get onto the train or the bus or whatever it may be that they're using. They pay using that app. And that's that. So that's the, uh, that's the first implementation of an actual CBDC that we've seen. And it's super small scale. It's still in the preliminary trials. But it is interesting that China is finally putting it into play in the actual economy itself and not just thinking about it theoretically. Everyone else is way far behind in that regard. The European Central Bank is, they've published a few papers and things like that on the digital euro, and they're looking more into it than they were in the past. Same with the US. Um, The US is actually even further behind the European Central Bank because the Fed hasn't even started looking into it much or publishing any papers on it. They've just kind of mentioned, oh yeah, we're going to start looking into this now. So I think especially recently, Chairman Jerome Powell has said a couple things about, oh yeah, we're, we're definitely looking into it. Like we're excited about it, things like that. But yeah, so China is definitely the, the forerunner from a standpoint of the CBDCs. And like I said earlier about uh, when you said Alipay, I think that's part, if not most of the reason why China's going to be so successful with it is because people are already used to using apps like that. In the US, you know, people use Venmo, but I feel like not nearly as comprehensively as things like Alipay and stuff like that, you know. You can buy stuff from the store, or at least exactly. using a digital currency, you have to pay exactly. credit cards. Yep. So I guess yep. the point is that the system isn't already in place in Europe and America where exactly. kind of like it's already in place so it's easier to transition to make. Exactly. Yep. I see. For sure. But yeah, that's definitely very interesting just from prison currency system where it can draw so many parallels and even to advantage right. of the, the whole scale of economics in the whole world. That's yeah, exactly. That's yeah. incredible. It is. No, it was crazy to see because I, I initially, whenever I started working on the paper, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to write 15 pages about this. You know, like I found two articles and I was searching everywhere for another article because there was a guy that actually worked in the Louisiana state penitentiary 
prior, like 19th or 20th century, that was writing about the underground economy within the prison. So I was trying to find his papers and I just couldn't do it. Like couldn't get anything because nothing was available because it was all like underground stuff, you know? And so I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to do, but it was, it was super cool to continue to grind it out on that topic and then see how it could draw parallels to, to stuff that's bigger, like, you know, CBDCs and, and the global economies functioning and things like that. But it was, yeah, it was super cool. So I'm definitely interested in, I, I never thought about doing research necessarily prior to doing or, you know, doing research as a career prior to doing this. But then once you do it and you see like, wow, that was like really cool to finally find that comparison. It's like, oh, maybe, you know, that could be something interesting. Because what else can you, what what other small stuff can you look at to see something bigger? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, wow, there you go. You know? Yeah. It's a lot of hidden things in the world where it just needs to be observed and studied. Right. So I was just wondering, uh, what are your plans in the future? I know you just said, doing research like that makes you want to do more of the same. Uh, is that kind of what you had have in mind right now? Yeah. Um, it definitely got me interested in economic research more so than I had been before. And I think it would be super cool to continue to monitor even this specific topic, continue to monitor the, um, the progress of the CBDCs around the world, because it was really interesting for me, especially nowadays, um, looking at like Bitcoin and, you know, other things like that, the cryptocurrencies and how popular they're getting. It was super cool to be actually doing research on kind of the same topics, you know? So I was glad I picked something that wasn't just like, oh yeah, like here's some random economic framework and this is how it works. You know, like it was definitely cool to actually be looking at things that were happening around us now. And as I was doing the research, I kept having to go back and add new articles that had just been published, you know, like it was like, all my, I think, I don't, I don't think I had a single, besides the one from 1945, obviously, I don't think I had a single article or publication or anything in my bibliography that was dated prior to 2016. Like it was like super cool to actually be doing the current event stuff. So that's what I was thinking after doing the project, I definitely want to do something um, with regard to either economic or like financial research. So whether it's like financial advising and looking at you know, the current functioning of the economy and all that and seeing, you know, what investments might be good to make for people or for, for whatever it may be. So something like that, or even like I said, yeah, looking at more economic geared research, the Fed would be a great place to work, especially nowadays with the CBDC stuff and all that growing in popularity. I think it would be super cool to, you know, have a part to play in that. But yeah, so that's, that's kind of what it got me thinking about. So I've been looking into some financial advising slash research positions and just trying to find something that'll be a good fit for that stuff. That sounds awesome, man. Uh, I think we got all the economic juice out of you from this research. <laughs> for sure. At least I learned a lot. Um, so I guess the final parting question we have here is um, for, for other undergrads who are, you know, just getting into college or even high school students who are like not even in college. How do you like, what are, what are some of the advice you have for these kids to go into, you know, maybe doing research? like that yeah. during the undergrads, you know, or even for early sure. starting in freshman year or stuff like that. Like, how does your, for example, how does your advisor play into this role? And like, or like what research does she or he do? Like, how does, yeah. how, how does that mm-hmm. process work? Yeah. I mean, definitely some advice I would have would be to look at something that you're interested in. And even if you can't initially see a full project coming out of it, keep grinding on it. And eventually you'll see some comparison to something else or you'll see something and be like, oh, wow, yeah, I could write about that. 
and stuff like that. You know, because like I said, at first I was like, I don't know how I'm going to write about this for 15 pages. But then <clears throat> once you get into it and you're talking about it, thinking about it, it's, uh, oh gosh, my allergies are killing me. <laughs> but yeah, once you, once you get into it, it, it gets much easier. And another piece of advice I would have would be don't write it to make it sound so formal. Write it because you're interested in it and write it like you're interested in it and like you're talking about it with someone that's interested in it. Like I think the way that we're talking about it right now is pretty similar to the way that I tried to write the paper because I didn't want it to be like, oh yeah, using this framework and this and the ISLM model and blah, blah, blah. You know, like I, I, I wasn't trying to get into all that. I just, I'm interested in it. I think it's an interesting topic and I want to talk about it. You know what I mean? So that's, yeah. that's another piece of advice I would have would be to whenever you're trying to write about it, it gets hard whenever you try to like, oh, how can I make this sound academic? Just write about it and talk about what you're interested in would be another piece of advice. I mean, I'm not saying that you got to use slang terms and all that, but you know, just yeah. make it you sound know. normal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and it just flows so much better and it makes it so much easier for you as the researcher too, because then it's just, you're actually writing down your knowledge and what you know and what you're interested in, you know? So that was another thing that I was trying to focus on as I was writing the paper. And then, yeah, from the advisor perspective, my advisor was actually the guy that I had for that monetary class that I was talking about. He was the professor I had for that class. And I knew he did monetary research. He actually was one of the analysts at the Fed for some period of time. I think it was like the St. Louis Fed that he worked at. So yeah, so find someone that's going to be able to have some knowledge of your topic, but obviously not someone that's already done your project. You know what I mean? Because then you're, you're not writing your paper, you're writing their paper in your words, you know? So I would say, and that was easy for a topic like prison currencies because there's nobody's really doing that much research on that kind of stuff. And also with CBDCs, you know, there's some research going around, but it's such a new topic that nobody's necessarily, you know, putting out published, finished, polished papers right now on them. So it was easy for a topic like that. But for another topic that might be a little more mainstream, don't find someone that's just going to tell you exactly what to write and you're going to copy it down. You know, find someone that's going to be interested in what you're doing and work with you as opposed to just telling you what to do. So that was another thing that I thought like it would be good to have an advisor that's obviously involved and knowledgeable about the macro economy and things like that, especially with currency, but not necessarily someone that's just going to say, oh yeah, write this, write this, because those are my conclusions. So, you know, find someone that'll, that'll guide you along the way and say, like my advisor said, like, look at the constraints. And that was like a breakthrough for me because then I got to thinking about why, why did they need to use a digital currency? And that's when I finally started thinking about why would we need to use it, you know, in general and stuff like that. So just find someone that's going to give you guiding questions like that, but not just going to tell you exactly, you know, what's going on. Cause I think you learn a lot more that way. I think it just becomes a all around more fun and educational experience when you do it that way. Right. It's, it ends up being your project rather than yeah. someone else's. Side. Exactly. Right. Well, well, all right, man. Well, I definitely learned a lot and I hope everybody listening to this episode also learned a lot. It's definitely a very interesting topic. And yeah, for sure. Thank you. More of the same work down the line in the future. And I would love to get back to get you back on the podcast in the future to see what, sure. what you've learned. Yeah, but 100%. Yeah. We have, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. In the next episode of Extracurricular, our guest is Nathan Shepard, who is a political science major and worked directly with the U.S. Congress in Washington, D.C. 
Basically, I worked for a think tank called the Bipartisan Policy Center, and I was on their energy project. And that's next time on Extracurricular.